a lot of times when I ask a client, what would you love? They're like, well, I want to do this by this time and this by this time. And that's an outcome. And I say, well, when you get that, who are you going to be when you have it? And they're like, I'm, I'm going to be happy. And I'm like, what does your happiness look like? And they, they can't answer that because it's been based on outcome rather than process the entire time. Our growth, our transformation is a process. It's not a product that we just arrive at. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear one conversation after another that gives you aha moments. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world. It's so hidden by the negative noise that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness in our times. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you're part of that wave. You're probably a remarkable giver, doer, and helper in your circles. And the guests on this podcast will give you inspiration, joy, and insights um, fresh ideas to help you continue this key role in our society right now. So welcome. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the mothership website of this, uh, of this podcast at the goodness exchange. The goodness exchange is a positive news website for curious people. We published thousands of articles over the last 10 years with beautiful links to things that will put a spring in your step. And this podcast and the Goodness Exchange, well, you know, they're focused on um, what's right with the world. There's lots of other people doing good work about what's wrong, but we're going to get to what's right and start with our guest today, Crystal Brown. Crystal is an amazing artist, mother, educator. She's a choreographer at Middlebury College, the renowned Middlebury College. She's a facilitator and a coach. And I first saw Crystal as uh, she was the keynote speaker at a business for social responsibility conference I was at. And I was just bowled over by her energy and her creativity. And she has sort of a master, a mastery of clarity for finding and pointing to your real vision, the vision that so often becomes clouded by all the social norms in our lives. Crystal is a sought after vision coach, a professional speaker. Uh, she offers inspiring uh, workshops to sold out crowds all over the United States. I think that Crystal has a mastery of aliveness that made me want to share her work with you today. So Crystal has been featured on the, the Moth, NPR's Moth Radio, TEDx Middlebury, and various other podcasts across the United States and actually in Zambia as well. I'm so excited to bring her work and her insights to our Conspiracy of Goodness audience. Welcome, Crystal Brown. Hey, thanks for having me, Linda. Thank you so much. It was a lovely introduction. I appreciate you. Well, I tell you, um, I really was, I am, I'm, uh, I'm on, I'm being very honest when I say you just bowled me over at, with your keynote at that, uh, businesses for responsibility opener. I'm telling you, um, you made me feel like anything is possible. And then the deeper I dive, I dove into your work, the more I, I, I really feel like that's what you bring to the stage. So let's get to it. Um, want to share as much of your insights as I can with our audience. So for me, I mean, I do believe anything is possible. You know, like 
I'm a little country girl from a small town that no one's heard of, except for they get a barbecue sandwich on their way to the beach there. And so for me to have this touring career as a professional dancer, being 5'3 and 160 pounds and seeing the whole world and uh, becoming the first Black woman to be tenured at Middlebury College and, you know, raising an amazing genius child, you know, all the things, right, (laughs) make me feel like anything is possible. Yeah. That's lovely. That's exactly where we were going to start, because what I found um, so remarkable and so sort of normal um, is that you you have a trajectory where you've had largely three major careers and people think that that um, to be operating in your zone of genius, you may have needed to discover it 10,000 hours ago or mm-hmm. all your life been working towards something. But you really prove this fact that that our knowledge, our success, our clarity, our vision is so cumulative. Tell, Give us a little arc of time over your work and how you got here, Crystal. Yeah, that is exactly what I believe, that it's cumulative and that sometimes we're so focused on the expertise that we miss the chances to become an expert in other things along the way, right? So for those of your audience who are just meeting me, uh, hello, first of all. Um, And second of all, I got into dance because of a carpool accident, right? Like I was supposed to be dropped off at a piano lesson. I got dropped off at a dance class. My best friend's mom didn't have time to get me to the right place. And she was like, just wait here. And so I like got to a dance class and started bartering with my mom. Like, can I do this instead of the piano? And that in itself was like, how do you negotiate, right? Like I became a master negotiator at nine. Then I started dancing and it was the thing that got me a lot of attention. Um, I wasn't probably the most flexible or the most traditional, but what I did bring to it was a sense of performance because Ultimately, I'm a second child and my brother and I are eight years apart. So I was, we're kind of like two only children. And so for me to have the eyes on me, like promoted the, the drive in me to come to rehearsal every day, to practice every day, to keep the eyes on me. Right. And so that love then turned into a love of teaching when I was 14, when my dance teacher allowed me to start being her assistant. That was kind of like the only thing that I thought was possible with dance was to go back home and open a dance studio. Um, And so lo and behold, my vision at that point became, I'll go back to my hometown and be the first black dance teacher. And then years later, after touring with major dance companies, you know, Bill T. Jones or Bushwoman, Liz Lerman, all these people coming back around to being a professor at Middlebury and being the first African-American woman to be tenured in, especially in a field like dance, became the same vision. It just had a a bigger platform and it was in a different small town, right? So a lot of times when we're looking at the trajectory of our lives, we sometimes have to remember what we asked for first, right? And even though the success looks different, it's really the same thing we've been seeding and nurturing the whole time. So I've always loved to teach. I've always loved people, right? I'm a huge people person. I'm that kid that you had to go find you know, in Kmart, because I've wandered off talking to the stranger about what they're doing, right? I love people. And um, I really have been able to translate the way that I communicate from the stage into a communication of connection and kind of soul talk on on a one-on-one basis with my clients. So yeah, all in all, it's the same thing I've been doing. It just looks different. So then, okay, so you had a dance career. Let's just... Break it up into three. You had a dance career, then you got into education, and now you're consulting and coaching and all that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, 
One of the things that I came across that somebody said about you was that you help people discover a bigger version of themselves and who they could become. And, uh, you know, start there. Talk to us about why you even think there's a b- bigger version of your of ourselves than, than, we're, than we're chasing. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's just think of it, right? Like we all go to um, the eye doctor, right? At least, you know, few, every few years. And we go there for them to tell us the calibration of our vision, right? And so they're like, oh, you're 2020 or you got a little nearsighted in this one, right? So the real nugget there is that we can never see ourselves clearly. And then we have to tell, we have to ask people for uh, insight on actually what our perspective is. So what we learn early on is, which is false, is that perspective is a demeanor, but it's really a skill we can train, right? So when we look at glass half empty, half full, we're telling ourselves, oh, that's just kind of, that's my personality. That's who I am. That's how I always do it. But the real key there is that we don't have to do it that way anymore, you have a choice each day. So I get to choose how I see myself, which then allows me to find a bigger version of myself that I never knew was possible, not because it wasn't there, but because I didn't have the perspective to practice something bigger, right? Like practice is one of those words that I love because it's the crux of our spirituality. It's the crux of how we see the two major um, uh uh, professions in this country, doctors and lawyers, they're always practicing, right? But we don't give ourselves as individuals the opportunity to practice the day. And so when I ask clients, like, what would you really love? Who would you like to become? I'm asking them to practice a new version, not just maintain the same old thing they've been doing. Right. That comes to something that you that you mentioned in our pre-call that we tend to bury our own desires. Uh, many of us working so hard for others all the time. Talk to us about how that works. Yeah, working so hard for others, working so hard for traditional success, working so hard to be known, I'm really not known at all. Right? Where a lot of us are working hard to be seen, but not known, right? And so there's this really amazing word called yada, which is like to know and be known, right? And so we, when we think about that reciprocity of knowing, it takes another level of vulnerability, but it also takes uncovering the deepest desires of ourselves so we know who we're introducing people to, right? One of the most important things I ever learned um, along the way, especially as a professional dancer, because you can often in the field of arts, especially in America, get caught up in being the vessel for someone else's imagination and you lose your own, right? So what I had to really remember um, is that I had to always be open and available, but I also had to be clear about who I was. And in that, I had to teach people constantly how to treat me based on who I was teaching myself I was, right? Because identity is also a construct that's malleable, right? When I was uh, in a little town where I was born, I was Jackie's daughter. I was Reese's sister, right? I didn't get to be Crystal, not nonetheless Crystal Brown, right? Until I got into my own sphere of influence. And I then had to actually grow into who Crystal Brown was. And then I had to own it. And then at certain a certain point in my life, I you know, fell victim like most of us do to the fatalities of fatigue and literally remember the moment that I fell down in our New York apartment and just like sat in front of my closet and said, I am so tired of being Crystal Brown, right? And then for the next two years, I had the worst two years of my life. There was like, it was like normal. And I said, I will never 
ask to be normal again, right? Like I just don't even want to do it um, because it's much better. Like, you know, Dr. Benjamin Hardy says it's much better to fail at being your future self than it is to succeed at being who you are now. Mm. Well, that comes to this question of, um, of how do we know we're being successful at being ourselves? You, you, you yeah. mentioned something like that to me the other day. Yeah. I think you know you're being successful at being yourself when at night you get ready to go to bed and there are absolutely no regrets. There might be some missteps. There might be some things you wish you could have done better. But at the end, there's no regret. Right? A lot of times we go to bed at night with a list of things on our chest, on our mind that are for the benefit of other people. And when we don't get those done, we either count ourselves as a success or a failure or valuable or not valuable to those people. When we go to bed at night and we can say, I didn't get that done, but I feel fine. Right. I didn't get that done, but I was honest about where I was going to you know, miss the mark today. I didn't get that done. But in the interim, I learned something that's going to help me propel the next part of this relationship, this company, this vision. And I can be honest about that with the people around me so that everyone still understands that I'm invested, but I'm not consumed. I, I love this concept of being invested, but not consumed because you, we do have these conversations with folks and we think, oh my gosh, they're consumed by that one thing. Yeah. 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 And usually that one thing is not even their one thing, right? You know, like it, because we were talking earlier, right? The, the 10,000 hours comes from the book, the one thing, like, you know, finding your, and you know, a lot of times that one thing is something that they haven't even named yet. Right. Like the consumption of information hasn't synthesized into the actual disposition of purpose. Right? And so we get that conflated as well. So one of the things that I wrote down um, that I wanted you to chat with about is this. Uh, the paradigm of your own identity is tied to how much space you've actually had to explore. Yeah, now, I just want to. I want everybody to think about that. If you've yeah. had six careers, you've probably explored a lot of space. Mm -hmm. If you've, I, I don't know, there's a million ways we can explore a lot of things in life, but your the paradigm of your own identity is, is probably trapped inside that box of what you've yeah. explored, right? Yeah. So, you know, let's just for most people, right? Like paradigm might not be a daily word that they use. So paradigm is like this deep belief system. It's, it's the deep groove in the record that whenever the needle hits it, it plays. Like someone calls you, you're going to save the day, right? Like that's the identity that you're ready to put on at any moment. And so when we get into the save the day paradigm identity, it's hard for us to ask for help because that's not the identity we've been practicing. When we get into the I'm the fixer mentality, or we get into the I'll take the risk for everyone mentality, or when we get into the I'm the, in the person in the background mentality, we never find the fullness of our own voice. And so what we practice persists into the paradigm and our identity becomes tied to what we know the most, the, the most convenient solution rather than the most soulful solution. Right. And so I love it. The, I, I have a colleague, Dr. Curtis Jasper, who writes about solutions, but he spells it S-O-U-L, right? Solutions, right? So thinking about not just getting to the crux of where the intersection of your need and a solution may happen, but coming from the inside out and finding a collaborative tool 
that will hold us both accountable to be better at the end of this negotiation, right? So that kind of way of figuring out how we change the personality paradigm so that we can have a bigger identity experience. And in that bigger identity experience, we increase our own value and our sense of deserving. Mm, Lovely. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about that sense of deserving. Hey, Dr. Linda here. Did you know that a recent Harvard study found that exposure to just four minutes of good news each day will make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Just four minutes. We've all got that much time to devote to our worldview and our sense of flourishing. Yes, if you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, You can be the one in your circles with fresh insights, ideas, and a sense of strength. Okay, so that takes care of the problem in our personal lives. But what about our work environments? We need to feel like we come alive there, that we have meaning and purpose there. Well, enter the goodness exchange for business. For companies that want to create optimistic and values-driven work cultures, our content can give you a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may depend on your company's ability to nurture a tone of innovation, interesting collaborations, and possibility. And most importantly, the Goodness Exchange can meaningfully elevate your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages. Your work culture can be offering employees something new, peace of mind and that sense of flourishing, where employees' well-being isn't just a perk. It's the way we care about the individuals in our workplaces. So if you'd like to chat about infusing your culture with a tone of celebration about goodness and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl. Her email address is info at goodnessexchange.com. Thanks. Okay, we're back. Oh my gosh, we're having a great conversation with Crystal Brown. She's a mother, author, coach, facilitator, the first female black educator, uh, um, a tenured at Middlebury College, as you may know, one of the most premier institutions in our country. Crystal is helping us see with a lot more clarity what we're uniquely built to contribute the vision for ourselves going forward. And I, she, she mentioned this great thing to me when we were talking, she, that I'd love her to start the, um, the second half of the podcast with, you said, integrity is the agreements we keep with others, but that changes what we can give to ourselves. Help us see that a bit clearer. Of course, Linda. So in our practice, especially with clients who, have already achieved a certain level of success and now they're like well what's next or why don't i feel full or whole um we get to this crux where we have to decipher between confidence and integrity right so confidence for us really means the agreements we keep with ourselves and if we keep the agreements with ourselves we build a confidence in our own intuition and we're ready and eager to do the next thing when we've been functioning our entire professional or personal lives on integrity, which is the agreements we keep with other people, then we only find value in the thing we can create for others. So 
as we start to peel that back, I start to ask clients to really integrate the same integrity that they have with others into building the confidence within themselves, right? So I ask them to make themselves their primary client, right? If you had a deliverable for your primary client, is there anything that would keep you from getting it done? And most of them are like, no, no, I have the briefs on the table. I manage my team. I did it right. And I'm like, do it for yourself, right? So really thinking about if I say that I want to wake up at a certain time and I miss it or I hit snooze on the alarm, I'm constantly making those small choices that deplete my confidence in myself. But if I have to be somewhere for a client, I'm there 15 minutes early. So it's really about how we show up for ourselves to give ourselves the same amount of investment, that same amount of daily action compound interest that changes the capacity that we see we we can be for ourselves rather than what we can be for others. And I'm not saying that you should be be there for others, right? I have We all have primary clients, right? I have one that's 13 years old. We all have primary clients, right? But the essence of it is to allow the client to understand where your boundaries are so that you cannot fall victim to overlaying your own value of what you can do for others into or extricably from the value that you offer yourself. So that gets to something also that you said, you said the first question should not be what you can make happen, but what would you love? Right. This is, this is huge. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's break this. I don't want to be like too, I I don't want to give these huge examples that might not pertain to other people's lives. Right. But let's just do, let's just do one really simple. I grew up in a house, again, where I was the second child. My brother and I are eight years apart. And so when I became a someone's mother, I thought, oh, how would I like, how would I have loved to be woken up? Right? Like, Or like, how would I have loved to go to bed at night? Like, So I started practicing these little rituals with my child to change the dynamic of what I was used to and what, he, what was available to him. It wasn't about like, okay, time to go to bed, brush your teeth. I was like, okay. Like, you know, we shut down the devices an hour before all the TVs go off. We do a little thing. We play a little game. We usually end up wrestling. He's 13 years old. We're still wrestling, right? We Like this, this thing that happens. And then, you know, we kind of wind down and go to bed, right? But it's about how I would love our interaction to be, not what I'm trying to make him into. Right? And so the it's not outcome-based. It's all process-based. Right. And so a lot of times when I ask a client, what would you love? They're like, well, I want to do this by this time and this by this time. And that's an outcome. And I say, well, when you get that, who are you going to be when you have it? And they're like, I'm going to be happy. And I was like, what does your happiness look like? And then they can't answer that because it's been based on outcome rather than process the entire time. Right. Our growth, our transformation is a process. It's not a product that we just arrive at. Gosh, we focus on outcome to to the out uh, to the expense of the process i i interviewed seth godin recently he you probably know is a pretty well-known thought leader in the world of business innovation and he said something that stuck with me every day he says often we're just standing on one foot doing whatever we're that we should be really in, deeply engaged in we're just standing there on one foot waiting to dive back to something else we're never truly present in the process. Exactly. Exactly. 
So um, I'll make sure that 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 was a really fabulous actual um, episode. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. Okay. So then you shared this thing with me that I also absolutely loved. You have, you said people grow and change because of their belief and belongings. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really big one for me, especially in my practice, Linda, because um, unless a client really needs one-on-one support, the first thing we do is bring them into our community where they need to introduce themselves to a stranger. And I believe introducing yourself to a stranger is the biggest thing that jumpstarts your transformation because you get to practice who you're becoming before you run some, give someone your resume. Because no one in our community, you know, it's not like we don't care what you've done in the past, but we really want to know what would you like, what's the next level, right? Like what's the and, and next level, not in terms of hierarchy, like more money, more power, like who, what's in you that really wants to come alive? So we have, you know, CEOs and people who join our group and they say, I would really love to cook dinner every day for my spouse, or I would really love to take three days off a week, right? And that becomes who they are. It's not about what they've done in the past. And so this belief in belonging falls in line with allowing yourself to belong to a new community that's not dependent on your old identity. And then having that new community believe or become a partner in believing with you for the thing you would really love, right? And so we don't have to figure it all out on our own. We know this, but we just don't use it. Like we understand that infinite intelligence, like there's somewhere that we're all connected to something that we cannot control the air. We cannot control if we're breathing moment to moment. So there's got to be something that we can connect with that is in there with each other, right? So we got to be able to reach beyond like, what do you do for a living? How's the weather where you are, right? We got to be able to reach in so that we can develop something new on the outside in our lives. I think it's really interesting the quote you brought up by Seth Godin, right? Because as a dancer for so many years, standing on one leg is essential, right? It's how we find balance, right? It's how we turn, it's how we do things, right? And so when we think about that, it brings up the old adage of waiting on the other shoe to drop, but it also brings up what we decipher or what we understand intrinsically as balance. And balance is not always 50-50. It rarely is 50-50. But we sometimes forget that the 90-10 is still balanced and there's something we can learn from that 90-10. There's something we can learn from the 65-35, right? And we have to know where that positionality is so that we can see the full picture that things are still in some type of balance and order. We're just playing a different role. And that's not a bad thing. So I imagine if, if what we're talking about here thus far or thereafter is um, striking a chord for folks. We, we have to talk about the book, um, Steps yeah. and Stories. Yes, the Steps and Stories. Gross with Grace. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about this. So for many people out there who have read self-development books, this is not that, <laughs> right? This is an interactive devotional type of self-development where I get you get to use me as the example. So I'll give you 30 stories of the way that my life has changed or transformed. And some of them are you know, fun and some of them are not fun and some of them are funny and some of them you might have some tears in your eyes, but then it gives you a couple questions to ask or an answer to yourself in a little journal style that just asks you like, you know, where, where does this resonate for you and what's the next step you can take in creating your own transformation? 
It's called Steps and St Stories based on our practice steps and stages um, because it started with me saying, you know, I've learned a lot of steps and I've been on a lot of stages, right? And so these steps and stories are kind of the choreography of my transformation piece by piece and you get to kind of dive in and find your own authenticity. I, I think that's uh, that's a lovely way for people to continue with your work. Um, I want to talk about the, the, the subtitle there a little bit. Talk to us about grace, because I think it's something I feel like I'm really looking for in others now. I've I've let some news outlets go that I used to follow or, you know, influencers. I was never really big into influencers, but uh, I, I'm letting almost everybody go in my life that I was digitally attached to that isn't operating with grace anymore. And I don't mean grace like we usually think of it in a religious terms, but there's there's being graceful in the world. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a beautiful word because, you know, from the old, old, I'm from the South, right? So it's really, it, I grew up thinking that it meant an unmerited gift, right? Like you don't deserve it, but I'll give it to you anyway. <laughs> um, and then as an artist, as a dancer specifically, you know, it turned into how do I do something difficult and make it look easy, right? With grace. And then in my practice and in my transformation, in my own personal growth and the growth that I initiate in others, it becomes how do I allow myself to make mistakes, right? And so this 30 days of growth with grace is not about perfection. It's not about getting there. It's not about doing it right. It's not like in 30 days, I'm gonna be something or have something. It means that in these 30 days, I'm gonna explore some of the places of my past that might be giving me some clues for my future so that not only I can move through the process of understanding and excavating my past with grace, but I can move forward with wisdom. Because as my one of my mentors, Mary Morrissey says, the content of your life is the curriculum for your evolution. Most of us just don't take time to do the research on the content. We take the high points and we mark them as trouble. Don't do that again. I failed. You're, the, you're amazing, right? And then we just have these markers that we don't actually look at the journey of, and we don't take the time to connect the dots so that we can see what's really propelling us to the next stage. Just to rewind to something you said a yeah. few minutes ago, I, I think that grace, you said graceful is when you say, oh, she's so graceful, or he, we're, yeah. we're saying that it's like a quality that we admire in, in others that yeah. we maybe don't think we could pull off in the same circumstances ourselves. Exactly. Right. Right. So a lot of us know that if if the other shoe were to drop, right, then we have the kind of instinct to survive. Right. But we don't know if we have the grace to navigate appropriately, patiently in our full um, authenticity, in our full integrity, right, in our full confidence. We know we can get it done but it might be a mess. We don't know if we can show up to the thing and still be calm and patient and, and sad and excited and still get things done in a, in a way that's not a bull in a china shop, right? And that's what we really want to do. We want to arrive to every moment, whether it is a difficulty, challenge, celebration in our full selves so that there is that, that night when we go to bed, no regret and we feel successful at being ourselves. Where's the... Where's the risk? Where, where does risk factor in there? Because some of us have more or less ability to handle the risk of failing or the, or, or the risk of not being perfect. I, I see that a lot 
I love it when a public speaker, you know, somebody who's now the chairman of something has to give the keynote. Um, and then they, they just openly say, Hey, I, this is the first opening I've ever done. And most of us are pretty generous of spirit. If somebody just comes out and talks to us about the fact that this could be a mess, but I'm doing it the best I can talk to us about this, this being a little less risk averse and trying things. Yeah. So for me, uh, Linda, I like to think about risk as the process to getting the reward. Right. And so, you know, we hear all these things, no risk, no reward, no, you know, courage and all these things. But at the end of the day, if I don't try something new, I don't have any new data. I'm operating on old data, right? Every decision gives me data. Every data point gives me more courage to either make a better or a bigger decision. And then if we want to call that risk, that's fine. But at the same time, we're just earning another level of respect and confidence with ourselves, right? If we take a risk and we fail, great, right? We want to do it as fast as possible so we can get more data. And you're talking to someone, right, who has had big fail, big quote-unquote failures, right? Like, I'm the girl who canceled the wedding three months before the I do. I'm the girl who, you know, was a welfare mother in New York City in an 800-square-foot apartment. Like, I'm the girl who, like, has always said, like, if I fail... I would love to fail at being totally me rather than succeed and find myself stuck in someone else's reality of success that I have no idea how to navigate or get out of. Right? And so that risk for me is about freedom. Right? Authentic, true freedom, not the freedom that comes from I got a money in the bank account, not the freedom that comes from I, I, everybody knows my name. Because even we know that when that success quadrant starts to get full, fuller and fuller, it actually becomes more of a bondage than a freedom, right? And so we've seen this structure, kind of the walls close in on people over and over because they've done all the right things, right? Without taking any risk outside the box, right? We've seen that happen over and over. And so when I think about risk and I encourage my clients to take risk, I'm asking them, what's it, what is it worth to you? Right right now, when you make this decision, is the you five minutes, five days, five weeks, five months, five years from now going to be excited about the decision you're making now? Because if they're not, maybe it's not the right decision. Well, that comes back to something else that I I, um, I, I observe in society, which I know you have some lovely insights on, is that it's so easy to be at one end or the other of a spectrum because the middle is so messy. And... I think that in your message, I hear a little bit of like, embrace a mess, get in there in the middle. That's where all the, the excitement may be. Exactly. The middle is messy. Um, but the middle is also where the miracles happen, right? So if you want to jump from A to Z, you're going to miss all the good stuff in the middle, right? Um, and we know this from so many kind of ways that time takes over our lives, Right. And if we're not using our calendar as what we call an organizing principle for your energy, you might find yourself in a lot of different situations with no real experiences. Right. And so when we think about this, um, I think a lot about the middle as the place where we want to really take stock of what we said we wanted and what we're actually on our way to. Right. Because sometimes we get to the middle and we're like, I don't even know if that's what I want anymore. 
right? I don't even know if this is worth it, right? And that messy part in the middle allows us to then either transform what we're going towards or make a better choice, right? And that's where I think some of us don't sit long enough in the middle to actually know what it is we would truly love the next stage to be. And either we just proceed, you know, with blinders on, like, well, this is what we said we were going to do. We got to get it done. Or we retreat into old patterns of self-sabotage, small thinking, right? We shrink ourselves again just to be comfortable. Uh, But the middle gives us that place where we can ask a better question, where we can sit and where we can honestly give ourselves the permission to pause. And I think that's another thing that most people are not willing to do is give themselves permission to pause and reconfigure and then move forward rather than just continuing with the plan as it has been laid. So when we, just so people have some clarity, when we're talking about the messy middle, yeah, we have a good story about this. Like, I think lots of us think our decisions about, you know, whether to buy our kid a car or whether yeah. to go go to that family reunion or take the vacation that we really want to go to, or yeah. there's one or the other. It's very, you know, do we bring it up at the dinner table, this elephant in the room or not? Like, yeah. uh, talk help us evolve what this messy middle could be because it it seems pretty messy (laughs) yeah okay so let's just go back Uh, we'll we'll unpack the story for um your listeners in terms of crystal canceling a wedding to the to the love of her life okay so let's just let's go with this okay so that's amazing man we were were young in our 20s he was a drummer i was a dancer we just were like the we were like the epitome of love for everyone around us like we were the community everybody oh my god we want to be like you guys we're coming over to your house for dinner all the things okay now, um, fast forward a few years, okay, now we're engaged. Um, there's been some, you know, things in the relationship, like in every relationship that are kind of breaking down, but we're, we're like, we love you, we'll fix it. And then something on the inside of me, those deep paradigms that have been there forever, the little Southern girl in me woke up and said, I don't know if we can do this because um, you're going to be mad if the financial situation of this marriage doesn't change and you're in charge of the finances all the time. That's what the little Southern girl in me woke up and said. Now I said to her, don't worry about it. I'm used to it. I can handle the finances. And then she just kept nagging. She just kept nagging. And so we finally had these conversations. You know, we went to the pre-marriage counseling that was done by his godmother, who was an interfaith, interfaith minister. And she actually said to me, she said, I don't if you guys are on the same page about a lot of things that you need to be on the same page about. And I said, oh, wow, right? And so then I ended up, you know, one day just said, I don't think we can do this. And so we sent out the, the uninvitations, right? Like, this, we are not doing this. Thank you so much. Um, and it really boiled down to, Linda, that I loved this person. Not the, the man of my dream. Not the, I love this person enough not to be mad at them every day. Right. And I could see that. I could see that my engendering, my upbringing was really hitting a rub that was not going to change and that I was going to have to ask him to change who he was. And that's not love. And we have to then in the middle decipher the difference between love and marriage, because one is a feeling and the other one is an institution, a construct, an agreement. And so we weren't going to be good at the agreements of marriage, but we loved each other very much, right? And so to even be able to say that and detangle those two things, to know that as we both evolved, 
we might not be the best thing for each other, right? Had to be like a messy middle kind of conversation. And to this day, like, love him to death. We're great friends. Our, our families are very close. I call his mother when I have to make a big decision right now, right? Like, it's the same love, but it just wasn't supposed to be in that kind of scenario or box that we were trying to put it in. And, and we do try and put put all our relationships in a box pretty yeah. darn quick. This is a yeah. friend. This is a business contact. This yeah. is a lover. And yeah. maybe maybe those quick judgments don't even have people. <laughs> if yeah. we should do that at all, maybe they're in the wrong box, right? Because the, the quick judgments are based on like our animal brain of like, you know, our amygdala. Like when we first enter a room, we're like, is this person going to kill me or am I going to kill them? Am, like, am I at the top of the food chain, bottom of the food chain? Like we're constantly doing that, right? Just as a way to find ourselves in the right zone of experience to see what we can offer and what we can exchange in those moments, right? So yes, we do make these snap judgments about what the relationships are for, what the job is for, what the skill is for. And going back to how you, the first question you asked me, right? This trajectory of these three careers within the three careers are the threads of everything I've always been doing, right? And so if I had put them in these clear boxes early on, I would have never found the expansion of Crystal as a connector, as a builder, as a person, as a visionary, right? And I would have been kind of stuck in a box as well. So there's this great concept that um, I've heard you speak about, about um, that kind of relates to this what box and what relationship we put people in, but um, it goes out on the perimeter a good direction, I think, is this uh, this having building a community in your life yeah. versus building a cooperative living mentality with folks. Yeah. There's a pretty huge difference between those There's, two that yeah. I don't think we think about very often. Yeah, there's a big difference. Um, so... When we think about community and, you know, if you've read Bell Hooks, it's communion, right? Like when you think about coming into union with someone, whether that's a lover, a neighbor, whatever, that union requires a clarity of who you are, right? Now, when we find ourselves in these, in these beautiful neighborhoods um, where we know to talk to this person for that and this person is the person you go to for that, that's more of a cooperative living situation, right? Because we're depending on them for an outcome that they are um, responsible for or that they've engineered over and over for the benefit of others, right? And so when we have that, we're like, okay, great, we can depend on them, but we might not know them, right? And again, going back to this knowing, like I have actually in the last uh, year instituted a rule in my own personal and professional lives that I cannot work with anyone who only sees one side of my life right my therapist is is someone that has can see other parts of my life like you know a lot of people like to have their therapist kind of sequestered in their own little corner i'm like no 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 no. like we hang out like come over here like i need but you can't actually help me or you know like advise me unless you've seen me in more than one arena so like my accountant a whole nother section of my life right like Everybody in my life has seen a different side of Crystal so that they are not confused or that they're not trying to treat one particular perspective of a prismatic being. Like, it just can't work that way. So in, in our own lives, um, 
back to the folks that we're inviting in these really deep ways in our lives, whether it's a coworker that we're deeply trusting in or yeah. a lover or what have you. Um, we could, without realizing it, be in sort of this cooperative living situation and wanting a lot more out of it and not yes. realizing it, right? Yeah, right. We could be having transactions and hoping for transformation. Yeah, all, all the time, right? You're like, well, I inv I told him, I brought him coffee. Why aren't they my friend? But did you ask him to be your friend? <laughs> I mean, you just gotta ask, you know, like things like that. Like, I want to have a deeper conversation, but it never comes up. Bring it up. Yes, yes. I love that. We're wanting transformation from people, but really yeah. we're getting mostly transactions. Yeah. And that can be on us as well. Our own thinking can be very transactional. And yet yeah. all along, we're disappointed when they don't transform us. <laughs> yes, I think it's very true. It's I think a lot of people, especially people who find themselves, probably a lot of people in your audience who find themselves as givers, right? Ultimately want that reciprocity, but they're too ashamed to ask for it because they've just been known as the giver. And all this time, this giving is not building up abundance or gratitude. It's building up a seed of resentment of what they're not getting. And then they explode or, you know, kind of disintegrate into all the shoulda, woulda, couldas or the lack of what they don't have in their relationships, their private life, their confidence. Right. And so we got to find a way to reinvest in ourselves. So or to just be curious in the middle and ask the difficult questions of like, you know, when we have family members or people who depend on us, um, let's say let's say it's for money or something like that, something kind of really kind of standard. Hey, I need money. What if we start saying, what's another way I can support you? Like that's revolutionary for a lot of people. What is another way I can support you? You know, someone who's always asking for a ride. How would you feel if I started to teach you how to drive? Right, like what's the what's the other part of this thing that we we might be missing as the simple question, but that we feel like it's not in our um, ability to request, right? Like because they just see me one way. They call, I give them a ride. They call, I give them money. They call, I give them an answer. They have emergency, I fix it. Right? What would happen if we opened the container for solutions? You know, opening the container for solutions reminds me of something. Uh, this this beginner's mindset because the reason why somebody's annoying us because they keep asking us for a ride or money or whatever it starts to annoy us is because we're stuck in all this long history with them but if we can get back a beginner's mindset it, then you're there you're like how uh, how else can I support you or blah, blah. that is such a great little tool for maybe some relationship repairs at least on our end what we're putting out right Exactly, exactly. And it gives you, you know, one of the one of the drivers in my work, one of the things that gets me up every day, Linda, one of the things that keeps me engaged with my clients is a deep sense of curiosity. Right? And when we lose curiosity with people we think we know, the relationship's over. Doesn't matter what it is. Friendships, lovers, husbands, wives, students, children. When we lose curiosity, we have lost the ability to see them clearly, not for who they've been, but who they're becoming. And if we feel like they're stuck, our curiosity can actually bring them forth into another even evolution or perspective of themselves. That is a great perspective with which to 
treat difficult family relationships, Crystal. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I have an awkward relationship with my brother. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, we love each other, but I'm not sure we like each other. But I'm not curious about who's be who he's becoming anymore. That's on me. Yeah. Mm, that's huge. And it gives that's you huge. back ownership. It gives you back ownership of your, of your investment in the relationship, right? You don't have to just play the character who you used to. Yeah. Right? You get to then choose. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not who you think I am. I'm the curious sister. Mm -hmm. You know, that the more times I that we say things like, and you know, he always, or, you know, she always, that's when we're trapped in our own stuff, right? We, it's exactly. not about them anymore. We're, we've already written them off. We've written off their future and so mm -hmm. forth. Because it's easier to put the needle on the record. Yeah. So much easier to just play the old song again. Just, you know, he always yeah. does. I always do this. He always does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think this is, I keep, I love this. I love this part of our little uh, pre-call chat I keep keep find, trying to find a way to work it in so I think we'll just go sideways because I don't know how it's connected but I loved your thoughts on soft skills versus hard skills this is something that is could be so valuable to us in in um, you know collaborations that we're thinking of doing in our business life or our home life what have you talk to us about soft skills versus hard skills yeah so Linda, it's interesting to me, right? Because um, I think I really started to understand this as an artist while I was running a program, a program in entrepreneurship and innovation for Middlebury, is that students in this liberal arts environment would say, we need to know the hard skills. We need to excel in the, in the business management, right? And then we would have these amazing entrepreneurs and business leaders come in and they'd be talking about relationship and compassion and curiosity, right? And so as an artist, I was like, oh, I know both sides of this. And I think this conversation that had been being written about in these business magazines about the soft skills of business and the hard skills of business management and the MBA versus the you know creative thinker and, right? and then watching it shift into Fortune 500 companies trying to train their CEOs into empathy and creativity, right? And I was just looking at this as like, oh, there's been this bifurcation for so long of you're either good at this or you're good at that. And now the tables are shifting that you just have to be an all around compassionate, curious, engaged, intelligent person who's willing to connect their skills for the best solution. Right. And so these kind of hard and soft skills are really interesting to me because as I was seeing the innovation and the imagination of young entrepreneurs, I was also seeing that their innovation and imagination was what the Fortune 500 CEOs were now trying to get back to. Right. And so in my dance career, it mimics the kind of the trajectory of most artists, most physical artists. Right. Is that my body starts at this level that I need to train it up my imagination starts way up here. And I just, there's only one sweet spot in the middle where they both meet and the physical thing can do what the mental thing is asking. And then there's this other trajectory, right? Where now the mentality or the imagination kind of gets stuck and, but the, you know, all the things that just kind of go in and out of flux. But I think those, that soft and hard skill part, especially in entrepreneurship and innovation is that sweet spot where we cannot acknowledge that we need both and that 
the heart, the mind, the hands, and the feet come together, right, to actually create and produce something that no one's seen before. I thought that was a nice. There's a nice um, parallel to parenting in there too, mm -hmm. because you mentioned and I and I had noticed this, but I'd never really taken notice of it yeah. that we've that we've given kids in the last 10 years, a lot of emotional, a lot of language about their emotions. Yeah. So kids, um, so we've traded things like, um, well, we, I, I'm a welder. I do giant, giant artistic welding sculptures. And yeah. I learned that at our local high, high school. And mm -hmm. I was disappointed recently to realize they're not running that, that they're not keep teaching kids how to weld. I, I don't know who's going to build our bridges in the future, but, um, <laughs> But these hard skills like home ec and sewing and how to fix your jeans and yeah. whatever it is, yeah. welding and shop and all that, have been traded off for the soft skills of being a little bit more emotional intelligence. But there again, <laughs> yeah. where we need to be is somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I love it. Cause yeah, we did have this conversation mama to mama. Like, you, you know, there are children out here who can talk about their social emotional well-being but they can't make breakfast. And I'm not, this is not a, a dig on anyone's parenting. I'm not coming for anyone's, you know, just, just hear me when I say this, right? Like, and it's not just about what they can say. It's really about what they can do because what they've learned are a lot of labels for the beginning of a feeling without going through the process of the feeling and actually then finding out what they actually understand about it. Right? So, we have children who are like, well, you know, it's about my, it, it's about my, um, my shyness in communication. And I'm like, well, you're communicating with me right now. Right? So we have these words, we have, like, we, we're kind of like weaponizing language. And this is another thing, right? We just miss, um, we misconstrue information for actual knowledge and understanding. And understanding comes after experience. You have to have done something or felt something fully in order to have the knowledge and experience to speak about it. The, you can talk through it. I'm not opposed to let's talk through it. Like, oh, this is how you're feeling right now. Okay, check in with me tomorrow. How are you feeling about this? Go and do this and then tell me how you feel. Like these kinds of things, right? But I think you're, what you're getting at is that we've given children language, but we haven't given them opportunity to try things and fail and meet their own need before they label it as something that someone else needs to fix or accommodate. Reminds me of a of a, a thought leader that I interviewed, Kat Tweedy. She's got this great way of saying when we realize we're in some kind of emotional, deep emotional state to, to, of, of, of asking us to look for the intelligence there. Instead of slamming the door and saying, I shouldn't be angry or I shouldn't be sad or I'm, I'm going to be more grateful and not be, you know, so wretched about whatever. Uh, those are all ways of just slamming the door and not, as you say, going and finding out what's intelligence there. Yeah, right. Because the sh you know, I don't, we have a little saying in our practice, like stop shooting on yourself, right? I shouldn't be mad. I should, right? Stop shooting on yourself, right? So we don't <clears throat> close the door on anything. Mostly it's about the process. And I think she's right in that, you know, a lot of times we want ourselves to be perceived a certain way. So that's when we shut down our emotion. Like, we should be grateful. So let's not, let's stop complaining. Right. When honestly we could say, listen, I'm feeling like I'm really pissed off about this. Now, is it a fact or is it a feeling, right? Am I pissed off because of the thing in front of me or am I pissed off because 
several things happened that look like this thing, but is this that, right? I love uh, my therapist, her name is Dr. R.J. Bershawn Wayne, Wayne, and she says, you know, this is not that. You know, really clearly, Crystal, you're mad about this, but it, are you really mad about this or are you, are you mad about that thing that happened five years ago? Because they look similar, but this is not that. And we don't have to automatically jump to the thing we felt the last time that something looked like this happened. We can say, wait a minute, right? What's the feeling and what's the fact here? What is this and what is that? And is there some semblance? Yes, but can I be a little more curious to get to a better solution? It's really about curiosity so much so. Um, I wanted to leave people with a connection. The interview that we have with Seth Godin, where he gives a lot of lovely insights in the same vision and um, getting clarity is episode number 134 on the Conspiracy Goodness podcast. And as I mentioned, Kat Tweedies is 133. So as we wrap up here, I want you to talk to us about what you really wish people knew. If this interview were just three minutes long, you know, sometimes I'm sure you watch the news or you see something going on and you just go, ah, and you just really wish people knew something. What would it be? Yeah. Um, I think, Linda, I really wish that everyone <clears throat> knew that they were visionaries and that there is a right, there's a wrong, but there's always a real. And that real is based on the reality we're creating for ourselves. And it doesn't mean that we get to isolate ourselves in this la-la land, but it does mean that the insulation of your desire of you as a creative being has to be held with care so that the other things on the outside don't dim your light, don't squelch your fire, and don't try to tell you who you are because you get to be the author of yourself. Yeah. We didn't get to talk about it a lot um, today, but you you said that, um, you know, our all of our first communities where a lot of this, these expectations for ourselves are set is in our families very, yes. very, very early. How do we look at that with a little bit more clarity? The the expectations that we're setting for their, ourselves and, and those that somebody else set so long ago. Yeah. So this is a really, I love this because on our Wisdom Wednesday podcast, we're asking all our guests this season the same question. And it's taken from um, a, uh, a a quote from, um, oh, I can't remember, I'll, I'll find it for you. But the quote says, um, the family is the cradle of the world's misinformation. And so we're asking all of our guests, what's the first point of misinformation you got from your family that you had to either unlearn or reteach yourself? All right. And so that one, that's it, right? Like when we start to say, oh, yeah. There was a lot of things that were said in this cradle that I was rocked in or like brought up in. Like, when did I have to like undo and how did I find my own balance, right? Without being cradled in this misinformation. Oh, I love, I love wrapping up on that because it leaves us a question with a question to ask ourselves long after this. Um, okay. So tell us where people can connect with you and and maybe what next steps are and so forth, because I know you're going to inspire curiosity in people and they're going to want to know more. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to think about what you would really love and actually go through the process of giving yourself the freedom to vision, you can jump over to stepwithcrystal.com. And when you get there, you'll just see a little video about what we do. And if you'd love to schedule a call, you can come into our community as a vision builder. If you are interested in facilitating a meeting 
your company, your creative creative team about how each individual's vision can come into the collective outcome of your organization. You can also jump over to lifestepsandstages.com on the consulting page and fill out a little brief survey and we'll get in contact with you. But mostly stay in touch. I'm on all the socials, Coach Crystal, the vision coach, Crystal Brown on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Great. And, you know, all these links uh, um, will be in a really rich, fully filled out article on the Goodness Exchange. We embed the podcast in our normal Wednesday article. So there'll be every single link that Crystal and I talked about and a lot more there. Um, You won't find all that on Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast um, uh, platform is, but you can find it on the Goodness Exchange and a heck of a lot more goodness in progress of other great thought leaders who are leading us with some fresh ideas. So thank you so much, Crystal. Linda, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your goodness. All right. Well, great. I I hope if you are part of this, this world of curious people who would like to know more about the positive news happening out there that we're just not hearing enough about, visit the Goodness Exchange. And I, I hope all the connections to goodness and progress that Crystal and I shared with you today will carry you through your week and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks. Thanks, Crystal. Thank you. And so it is.